Dan, am I on? There we go. All right, so good morning. Um, hey, in your guest packet today, you'll see that there is um, some information. We now um, are able to su- subscribe to podcast. okay? So not only do we have the live streaming going out all over the U.S. and around the world, uh, but we also have the ability um, to subscribe to the podcast through two different options, iTunes and Podbean. Um, so it's in there. You get, also have the QR code you can scan, and it'll take you right to it. You can subscribe, and then each week you'll get the message that you can listen to on your uh, devices. Um, so once again, we are in the story. Um, we've been walking through the story for the last several months, and during this time, we've been really thinking about this in three different ways. God's story, our story, and what? My story. Come on now, you know better than that. Come on, God's story, our story, and my story, okay? So we've been learning about God's story, the upper story, and the lower story. That's God's story and our story, but we've also been learning about people's individual stories. And so each week we've been trying to hear Um, the story from one of our um, members here at Metro Believers Church. And so today we have Dan Koch who's going to come up and share his story. Um, Let's come on up, bro. Um, Microphone. You can put your stuff right here if you need to. There you go. I have no idea how to use this thing. Okay. Is that on, Dan? into my five minutes? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you have to take it up with Dan. Oh, there we go. Okay. All right. How's that? All right. Cool. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Matt, by the way, is this how I really sound in real life? Is this why we don't talk much anymore? Sorry. Yeah. All right. Just all that. Yeah. All right. Uh, everybody, my name is Dan, as uh, Pastor Glenn had said, and I'd like to give credit to uh, both you, Matt, and uh, Vicky here, because you guys have been with me through a lot of the stuff I've been through lately. This is why I'm up here standing completely afraid to talk in front of people, so we're going to see how this goes. All right. I was born and raised uh, one town over here in Sun Prairie, so not that far away. I've lived in this area for about 99% of my life. Uh, my mother brought me up in the United Methodist Church there in town, um, but I will say that I was not, not into religion, faith, spirituality, None of those things as a kid, but was forced to go anyway. So at uh, 14 years old, I was uh, confirmed and never looked back. Go figure. All right, so life goes on. At about 20 years old, I uh, took on a responsibility that I know I, this time I was definitely not ready for at that time. I became a father uh, of a pre-started family after the woman I was with had a son of her own, about seven months old. And uh, to this day, he's up in that room right now, and still the only father he's ever known. Oh, let's see. A uh, couple of few years of our relationships were definitely up and down. Fights, breakups, get back together. Another kid added to the mix. A lot of moving, a lot of financial struggles based on all those things. Medical bills, those kinds of things. The daughter up there at one point, to give an example of one of those things, fell out of a two-story window. You can imagine how financially and emotionally taxing that was been. Yeah. So between that, all those stresses, at uh, one point during when our youngest son was on his way, all those struggles kind of led me into my very public job. A lot of temptation involved in that uh, led me to have an affair of sorts. 
and I will not go into detail, obviously, but it happened. It's about the lowest mo moment in my life that I can think of ever doing. Nothing I ever thought would happen. Nothing I could ever see myself happening. And always thought I was better than that. But again, as we say, life goes on. Uh, culminating in that, my wife at the time found this church via one of our friends, actually, Chris over there, introduced this place to us, introduced us to a lot of these people, a lot of you guys here in this room, uh, to try to get us back on a different track, because obviously up until that point, we were not spiritually involved, faithfully involved, any of those things to kind of give us a good grounding as a couple, as a family, as people in general. Um, obviously, still at that age, I was still very hesitant, not wanting to be involved, not thinking I needed it. I was in that moment of denial of, I've got this. I can do this. No matter what I've done, I've got this. I can do it by myself. Um, proved I was probably very wrong, as we would find out later. Uh, as resistant as I was, we were still trying to do just about anything to make things work. Um, we ended up moving to Oregon for all of two weeks, so you can imagine how much fun that was, driving 2,000 miles twice in a month with three kids. Yeah, it was, yeah, that wasn't fun. All right, obviously that did not work. We moved back home, living with my father, who took us in, all five of us, to his tiny two-bedroom apartment still in some prairie. Again, imagine three small children and three adults living in a building about the size of this stage. Yeah, a lot of stress in that. Um, so obviously you can tell the stress continued to build, continued to build, continued to build until uh, one night in October. Uh, the word divorce had been thrown out before, but never with a whole lot of seriousness, and uh, that changed drastically that night. Um, and after a few weeks of dealing with that, still living in the same house, as uncomfortable as that was, I decided one morning she'd asked me if I wanted to come to church with the kids and her, which normally was usually not, not a thing I participated in. I decided I was going to come here and sit down in one of those chairs right over there and listen to Glenn, which obviously I can't tell you the sermon that you were speaking that day, but Whatever it was, uh, I can only describe the feeling that I had at one moment during that service, hitting, being hit by probably the truck that I drive. I'm sitting right there in that chair over there, and that moment hit me, and I walked over to Matt during the confession prayer time at the side of the stage there and completely broke, completely and utterly broke, and probably sobbed for a good 20 minutes sitting in that chair with my hands on my head, or however that works. Um, and throughout that time, I've dealt with a lot of pain, a lot of disbelief, a lot of struggle personally, emotionally. I mean, I've gone through some emotional changes in, in parts of myself that I never knew existed until this time, between crying in public, crying in front of all of you right there in that chair. That was number one. Crying at my job in front of grown men, coworkers. We're men. We're not supposed to cry. We all know that. Um, but it brought me to a place to where I started leaning on people like Vicky, Matt, Glenn, other friends that I've got, started leaning on that kind of that foundation of spirituality and Christ and God uh, to give me something to work for other than just trying to deal with things by myself. And I wish I was memorable enough to remember a lot of the scripture that you have taught me over text, over phone, endless conversations that he and I have had just to help keep me through to be a better father a better husband at the time that I was fighting for, which unfortunately will end this coming Friday. Just put that out there. Um, but a better person for the future, a better husband at some point for that next person, and a better father continuing for both the kids that are both mine and 
technically not biologically, but he is every part of me that I could ever hope for. So at that point, what I hope for, for my future in this is to obviously keep showing up here as much as I can. I know I'm a little flaky. Sorry. But to keep coming here and keep building, building on that hunger that I know I've kind of strayed away from just a tad bit here in the last couple of months, but at least to keep building on that and keep growing stronger spiritually, keep meeting new people, keep meeting new people here, new people that bounce ideas off of, to learn from, to grow with, anything and everything that's always possible here with you guys here as a family. So, thank you. Great job, Dan. We're for you, buddy. I just love stuff like that where people are just starting to understand their faith and understand Christ and getting to know him more and more each day, right? It's just awesome. That's why we're here, folks, right? That's why, that's why we show up every week. We set up, tear down. We do all the stuff that we do. Um, that's why we're here. That's why we exist. So um, once again, so we don't... Um, waste any more of your time. We've been doing the story, and this is uh, week number, who can tell me? 15? Okay, week number 15. You don't look so sure, um, but we're having some of our teaching team throughout the summer um, actually take a week here or two and share from their perspective, and I just love that. I just want you to notice um, these guys just don't show up and teach when I'm gone, um, you know, they're just sort of fill-ins. But these guys have an, a genuine gift, okay? And I want you to notice where I am today, right here, listening to someone else on our teaching team. So, Manuel, come on, let's, let's do it. Let's get busy. All right. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome, bro. Um, you can go until uh, 10.50. Sounds right? great. I can do that. How do we I'm already done. <laughs> Fifteen after, okay. Fifteen after. Okay, sounds good. I don't have a I don't have a clock, so we're good. Good morning. Thank you so much for that testimony. That was awesome. Great stuff. Yes, thank you. It's hard to follow that. No, I love how we can see God working uh, in our brokenness. You know. Sometimes we don't want to give testimonies until everything's fine. But that that never really happens, you know, so thank you for stepping out and sharing awesome stuff, very encouraging. All right, welcome to some of the most depressing parts of the story. You know, you read this and you go, can Jesus come already? This is, this is depressing. All right, here are God's people who are called to be a blessing and a light to the nations are becoming dark and are becoming a curse to themselves and to others. Did you notice that? Now God is calling out to them. He's wrestling with them. He's warning them. And he sees where they're headed, and he doesn't want them to be destroyed. You see that? So he sends prophets. You know, he sends his messengers. And the showdown that's happening between the prophets and between what's going on is, it makes for great cinema. I mean, it really does. It's great stories. You read them, you go like, this is cool. Somebody should make this into a movie, not just a cheesy Bible movie, but like, these are great scripts, right? But the people that keep ignoring God, they keep ignoring his messengers. 
even killing many of them. Okay, so it's, it's intense what's going on here. Another thing we find is that God continually calls them to worship him. Do you see that? And you know, some people find that really weird. You know, Tim Mahoney, who is a leading Satanist, he says, this God of the Old Testament, you know, yeah, handouts are coming through. If you need a handout, uh, raise your hand and uh, a pen and you'll get that. Uh, thank you, guys. I always forget. You are important. I appreciate you coming up. All right. So um, God does not deal with any other God on a friendly basis. And some people say, if he asks us to worship only him, is he selfish? Right? Those are real questions that we need to kind of think about. But the reality is that God calls us to worship him. Why? Because it gives us life and it protects those that can't protect themselves. That's a very important phrase. It protects those that cannot protect themselves. Why is that? It is because there is this truth that in character, you become like the God you worship. In character, you become like what you worship. You know, when you worship something, you highly value it. You think about it all the time. Maybe you adjust your schedule, you know, or maybe you stream the games during the sermon, the sermon, sermon, service, sermon, whatever we're doing here, preaching. Yeah, when you worship something, you, you think about it all the time and it kind of consumes you and in the end you become like what you worship. Have you ever noticed that? Or what you highly value. So this means if you worship a God that is loving and just, you will become more loving and just. But if you worship a God that is manipulative, capricious, arbitrary, all these words of bad character, you will start living like that also. Okay, so let me say it again. You become in character like the God you worship. Okay, let's leave it there for now. We're going to look at how this plays out in the story today. At this point, I want to do a little review. How many of you were here last week for chapter 14? Okay, Pastor Glenn taught about the split of the kingdom, right? That is a very important thing to note, that the kingdom split. Otherwise, you read First and Second Kings if you read it. You go like, wait, it sounds like there's two nations here. That's because there are. In the south, you had Rehoboam, right, the son of Solomon, and the northern tribes came to him, and they said, hey, you, the tax burden your father put on us is kind of harsh. Can you lower it? And he came back to them, and he said, my father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. And the people were like, oh, no, thank you. And they made Jeroboam king of Israel and said, we're going to break away from you, and uh, now you have two kingdoms. Now, Jeroboam to keep his political power, invented a new religion, okay? It was an interesting syncretism between worshiping the Lord, but also worshiping these golden calves. Basically, he was afraid that people would go to another country to worship in Jerusalem, and then leave his country and settle around the temple. He's like, no problem, guys. I've got, you know, I've got the solution. And he creates this new worship, which built a really bad foundation for the northern kingdom, Okay? And today we want to talk about the northern kingdom. We want to talk about a guy named Ahab. Ahab was a king that was in the fourth dynasty within 53 years. I'm trying to say this in a better way. Since the split, it's been 53 years. Three dynasties of kings have already ruled and been completely destroyed. There's utter political chaos. In Judah, it was always the same dynasty for the whole time. It's crazy to think about. Okay? But we want to figure out 
who this Ahab is. So let's read about him. Is that okay? Can we turn to the screen? It's not in your handout. We have a lot of scripture today, so there's only one story in your handout. We'll get to it like the last 10 minutes of the sermon, so don't worry about finding stuff in there, okay? So let's go uh, and find out about this Ahab in 1 Kings 16, 29 to 33. And um, are you guys up for some audience participation while we read? Is that okay? Yeah? So no? Okay. If, you, if you're not, you know, just, just I'm listening to you. Uh, but uh, anytime in our reading today you see Baal or Asherah, which are two gods, I want you to go, boo. Can you do that? Can we practice that for a second? Baal. Okay, good. We, we don't want to get too extreme, you know. I mean, when you see the Lord, you could go, yay, but, you know, that, that may be too much excitement in church. So, let's, uh, anyway, so Ahab, son of Omri, began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Asa's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria 22 years. Thank you for that information. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ephbal of the Sidonians, and he began to bow down in worship of Baal. Yeah. First, Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. Then he set up an Asherah pole. Ooh. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the kings of Israel before him. Okay, so who are these Baal and Asherah? Boo. <laughs> they are fertility gods that come in pairs. Okay, you worship them through ritual prostitution. Uh, Ahab brought this worship to Israel. Later it spread to Judah. And uh, Jezebel, who brought these gods, was very manipulative. She was killing the Lord's prophets, and she had no regard for the life of the innocent. It was a very bad political move. You understand that? So her and her husband created this hypersexualized culture. And what happens when your culture becomes hypersexualized? You do not see people as people anymore. You see them as tools. You see them as something you can use. You see them as something that exists to gratify your own needs and your own desires, but they're not people anymore. Does that make sense? So as a result, you can easily exploit them. And you can say, I am important, you are not. So in Israel, this conse the consequence of this was that intrinsic value of people was diminished. And uh, injustice and murder reigned, lining the pocket, pockets of the powerful. Okay, that's the situation here. And then the story gets interesting, because this guy shows up, no credentials, nothing. It just says here in 1 Kings 17, 1. Now Elijah, who was from Tishbe in Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, not you, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. That's a weird scripture, right? Why is that in there? Well, let me explain something to you that I can't really explain. <laughs> the people believe that Baal was responsible to send rain on earth. Boo! <laughs> and, you know... The way they believe that you can look that up for yourself, but have somebody you can confess all your sins to, because it's so rated X that I was advised not to share it in church, okay? But that's the reality. They believe Baal brought the spring rain based on people having sex orgies and all that, okay? So in the power of the God of Israel that I serve, Elijah says, there won't be any rain. Now, if Baal is supposed to bring the rain, 
and it doesn't rain. What's the problem with Baal? He's not working. He's not powerful, right? He's impotent. So during this time of no rain, Elijah goes and hides himself. God provides for him. And here's what's cool. As the drought gets worse, God tells him to go to Sidon. Sidon. Have we heard about this just a few minutes ago. Who's from Sidon? Jezebel. Jezebel is from Sidon. So God tells Elijah, you're going to be an economic refugee and you're going to flee from Israel to Sidon. And what will happen there is I will have a widow take care of you there. All right? So in uh, verse 8 of uh, this 1 Kings 17, this is what happens. This is what the Lord says. He says, then the Lord said to Elijah, that's verse 8, <laughs> and verse 9 says, Go and live in the village of Sarephath near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. So Elijah flees to this country according to the word of the Lord. And he brings with him this faith he has as a man of God to bring life to Jezebel's home country while she brings death to Israel. It's an interesting juxtaposition. Great cinema. It's a cinema. That's what I'm saying. Uh, so Elijah goes there and he goes up to this widow that he sees and he says uh, in the story, hey, would you please bring me a cup of water? And the widow goes in to get a cup of water and then he calls after her, oh, uh, and also bring me a little bread. This is when the widow says to him this in verse 12. She says, I swear by the Lord your God. Some of she knows that he's a man of God from Israel. I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. I have only a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook uh, this last meal and then my son and I will die. Interesting. Elijah then responds to her and says this. If you're reading along, it's in verse 13 and 14. He says, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain on earth and the crops grow again. So this widow believed God, and this is exactly what happened. Incredible stuff. Elijah trusted God, and this trust was multiplied into a foreign country while Jezebel was destroying Israel with her idol worship that she brought from that country. Okay, sometime later the woman's son became sick and he died. Elijah prayed for him, he came back to life. These are incredible stories. Okay, Jezebel's killing the people of God. Elijah is raising her people in her home country. Juxtaposition, amazing stuff, right? Finally, after three years of drought, God tells Elijah to show himself to King Ahab. And uh, he meets Obadiah, who Eli uh, Ahab had sent out to look for springs of water. And I'm going through this story in detail because some of us don't know it, and it's an amazing story to see what God was doing. And what I want to do is I want to read with you a larger portion of Scripture to see what was happening in Israel at this time. Is that okay? Okay. So let's take a look at this in verse 7 here. As Obadiah was walking along, he suddenly saw Elijah coming toward him. And some of this stuff in here is going to be pretty funny, by the way. Obadiah recognized him at once and bowed low to the ground before him. 
Is it really you, my lord Elijah? He asked. Yes, it is, Elijah replied. Now go and tell your master, Elijah is here. Now look at this. Oh, sir, Obadiah protested. What harm have I done to you that you're sending me to my death at the hands of Ahab? For I swear by the Lord your God that the king has searched every nation and kingdom on earth from end to end to find you. And each time he was told, Elijah isn't here, King Ahab forced the king of that nation to swear to the truth of his claim. And now you say, go and tell your master Elijah is here. But as soon as I leave you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you away to who knows where. <laughs> when Ahab comes and cannot find you, he will kill me. Yet I have been a true servant of the Lord all my life. Has no one told you, my Lord, about the time when Jezebel was trying to kill the Lord's prophets? I hid 100 of them in two caves and supplied them with food and water. And now you say, go and tell your master Elijah is here. Sir, if I do that, Ahab will certainly kill me. This is a cool dialogue. I love it. But Elijah said, I swear by the Lord Almighty, in whose presence I stand, that I will present myself to Ahab this very day. So Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come, and Ahab went out to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, what did he say? So, it is really you, you troublemaker of Israel. What do you think about that? Isn't it incredible? The man of God is the troublemaker of Israel. Now, Elijah responds to this, like, um, excuse me, Sir Ahab, it is not I who have brought trouble to Israel, it's actually you and your idol worship. Right? And then he says, let's make a deal. And this is in verse 21. It says, then Elijah, oh, wait, hold on. This is the deal. He makes this deal with Ahab. He's like, look, you have 450 Baal prophets and 400 Asherah prophets. I am the only prophet of the Lord left. Let's have a showdown. We're going to meet on Mount Carmel. And that's not a giant Sunday ice cream. It's a mountain in Israel. <clears throat> I guess it's almost lunchtime. Uh, we're going to meet at Mount Carmel. And we're going to have a showdown. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. So then this is what the showdown is. He meets at Mount Carmel. Ahab calls all the people. There's thousands of people standing here, okay? And this is what happens. It says, then Elijah stood in front of them and said, to the people, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, boo, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Kind of like us when Petri asked, you know, what chapter are we at? <laughs> then Elijah said to them, I'm the only prophet of the Lord who is left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal made shoes, whichever one they wish, and cut into pieces and lay it on the wood of the altar, but without setting fire to it. I would prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the sacrifice or to the wood is the true God. And all the people are like, yeah, that sounds good. All the people agree. Okay, so the prophets of Baal go first. They prepare the sacrifice, they call out to their God from morning to noontime, and nothing happens. And Elijah goes like, maybe you got to shout louder. He even says this, he said, maybe your God is in the bathroom. Maybe he's on vacation. Whatever, you know, whatever it is, he's, he, it's not working for you, right? And uh, 
basically what they do is like, okay, are we going to shout louder? And they shout louder and they do their thing. They slash themselves as was their custom. It, it's this bloody mess. Um, and then Elijah eventually in the evening stands up. He approaches the sacrifice. He asks that three buckets of water, a very precious commodity at this point, but also a way to show that he's not cheating, are poured on the sacrifice, right? And then he prayed. And he says this very simple prayer, verse 36. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you're God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me, answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, He is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Pretty convincing, right? Now, right after this showdown, Elijah turns to Ahab and he says, Look, it's going to rain. Baal has just experienced a major whooping. And it is very clear that it is not him who brings the rain, but Yahweh, right? So Ahab goes home. And he goes to Jezebel, who wasn't there for some reason. He, he tells her everything that happened, that God has suffered a major defeat. Now, I would expect her to be like, shoot, man, that's, that's a pretty powerful God. Maybe I should worship him, right? And I would expect Elijah to be the celebrated man of God with high status in society now. But that's not what happens. Eli uh, Jezebel says, whoa! I'm going to kill this guy. If, I swear by the gods that if his head is still on his shoulder tomorrow, no, it's not going to happen. Elijah hears that, you know, and instead of being like, okay, you want me to call fire on you as well, Jezebel? <laughs> he actually flees. He becomes a refugee again. He flees to Judah. All right? And uh, what's interesting is this. Look at this in verse 3 and 4. It says, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. God then strengthens him and sends him back to ministry, you know. But I don't know about you, but I love how honest the Bible is, right? If, if I have somebody write an autobiography about me, I would probably want them to leave out that part when I was suicidal. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but no, it's right there. God put it there as an encouragement. You know, even if you're at the end of your rope, God can still strengthen you. And even if you feel depressed, there's been other people that have gone before you that saw God move in mighty ways that have been there. All right? Now, as we're finishing up, we're going to get to uh, the story in your handout. In 1 Kings 21, we see this consequence of Jezebel's influence in Israel. And this is a really, really important part of the Bible when it comes to government, when it comes to nations, when it comes to laws and God's response to it. So I want to look at that with you together, or together with you. Let's read this here. It says, you know, there was a name, nope, there was a man named Naboth from Jezreel. 
who owned a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. Okay, let's envision this. Here's the palace, here's this vineyard. One day, Ahab said to Naboth, since your vineyard is so conveniently located to my palace, I would like to buy it to use as a vegetable garden. I will give you a better vineyard in exchange, or if you prefer, I will pay you for it. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance that was passed down by my ancestors, which is his good right. In Deuteronomy, every family got land. That land could not be sold. It could be rented out and would always return to the family. So Ahab is basically asking something illegal, right? But here's Ahab's response. Ahab went home angry and sullen because of Naboth's answer. The king went to bed with his face to the wall and refused to eat. <laughs> He's pouting. And then Jezebel comes, you know. What's the matter? His wife Jezebel asked him. What made you so upset that you're not eating? <laughs> I asked Naboth to sell me his vineyard or trade it, but he refused. Ahab told her. Are you the king of Israel or not? Jezebel demanded, get up and eat something. And don't worry about it. Sorry, I can't speak in this high voice. I'll get you neighbor's vineyard. Interesting, huh? Are you the king or not? What the heck is wrong with you? So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent them to the elders and other leaders of the town where Naboth lived. In her letters, she commanded... Call the citizens together for a time of fasting and give Naboth a place of honor. And then see two scoundrels across from him who will accuse him of cursing God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. What do you think about that? So the elders and other town leaders followed the instructions Jezebel had written in the letters. Well, it's the king giving us a command, so we have to do it, right? They called for a fast and put Naboth at a prominent place before the people. Then the two scoundrels came and sat down across from him. They accused Naboth before all the people, saying, He cursed God and the king. So he was dragged outside the town and stoned to death. The town leaders then sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. When Jezebel heard the news, she said to Ahab, You know the vineyard Naboth wouldn't sell you? Well, you can have it now. So Ahab immediately went down to the vineyard of Naboth, Naboth to claim it. Hmm. You become like the God you worship. Ahab wants a piece of property, and he makes an offer to the owner. The owner says, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to break the law of the Lord and give you this property. And Ahab respects that law, but he doesn't like it, right? He goes, how many pouts? And then Jezebel goes, like, is that, is that how you behave as king? Now, there's a fundamental difference in her thinking when it comes to property and the rights of a king. Do you see that? I, give you, I gave you a little chart in your handout that you can look at. I think it's in your handout, right? About a biblical view and pagan view of God, government, laws, and property. Okay? I want to just look at that real fast. This comes from the whole story we have seen so far. And the juxtapositions that we have seen, uh, but it's culminating here in a neighbor's story. Does that make sense? So what do we see about God in the Bible? In the Bible, we see that God is just, he is holy, he loves all, uh, he's infinite and he's personal, right? And the pagan view about God 
shows a God that is arbitrary, uh, corrupt, can be manipulated. Hey, Baal, you know, I gave you this ox, so uh, you should give me something good. That's animism. That's manipulation of the gods for your own benefit, right? When it comes to people in the Bible, we see that people are precious and that they're equal. They're all of equal value. It doesn't matter if you're a king or if you're a foreigner or an orphan or a widow. They're all of equal value. While in the pagan view, we find that an individual is not valuable and that the king is more valuable or most valuable. Do you see that? Is that how you act as king? You just take what you want, right? What about government and law? In the biblical view, government is supposed to be just, supposed to protect individuals and their rights. Everyone is equal under the law, and the leader is there to serve. Even the leader is under the law. When it says, do not steal, the leader does not steal. Do you see that? In the pagan view, you have this arbitrary leadership or government where the leader takes what he wants. He rules by force, fear, and manipulation and uses a law to control others. Well, Ahab sent us this letter to set up neighbors and kill him. It's the law that says it, so we have to do it. Friends, just because it's law does not mean that it's right. And just because it isn't law does not mean that it's wrong. It's, well, it's the law, so that's what we got to do. Where does your law come from? Is it protecting people and their value, or is it protecting the elite? If it's protecting the elite, the Bible has some strong words about it. Right? And then property and economics. In the biblical view, property is protected. There are just returns for labor, and the economy prospers. People are valuable, therefore what they own is valuable and cannot just be taken. See that? In the pagan view, there is no security for property. There's injustice and theft and eventually poverty. I've seen it all over the world. I've been to places where I say, why don't you, you know, do better with your field? Because if I do better with my field and stuff grows there, the government will come and take it from me. I've seen people in YWAM that have given chickens to villages in uh, Zimbabwe to help families have an income. And the government came to them and said, we are going to kill you because what you're doing is you're trying to get the votes from these people by giving them food. All right? It's real. This stuff happens all over the world. Can the government come and just take your land because they want to? Not in the biblical view. All right? So does that make sense? The Bible has a lot to say about these things. It's very, very important. So either, there's two options. Either, and this is kind of black and white, but bear with me here, and I think you can see it in this story. Either you worship God as king, he is a God of justice and his law is over all earthly rulers. He values the individual in his law, protects their rights and property. You know, even in the Bible, the king is under the law, Deuteronomy 17, you're a servant to all. You know, do not steal, the king is to uphold this. And oftentimes this is called lex rex, the law is king, right? Or... You worship idols that are manipulative, rule by force, and laws are made up so you can use them to control others. In this case, man is king and makes laws to benefit him. You know, the law of God is ignored either because he doesn't exist in their mind or he can be manipulated so you can do whatever you want. It's not a big deal. 
Jezebel believes that the king may do as he pleases, as he's not accountable to any god. Might is right. You see that? Might is right, and others are there to make you richer. Property is not safeguarded, and you may die for what you have, because somebody else wants it. That's often called rex lex. The king is the law. What the king says is the law. Now, as we're finishing up, look at this in Deuteronomy 7, uh, 10, 17 to 18. It says this about God, and you will see how it is very contrary of a Baal that can be manipulated. It says here, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords. He is the great God, the mighty and awesome God who shows no partiality and he cannot be bribed. He ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. Orphans, widows, and foreigners were those that were easily exploited. And he said, I'm ensuring that those that would normally make you rich are protected in our society. Right? So the story ends, and I need to end here. The story ends, and Elijah finds Ahab. Right? The Lord said to Elijah, let's read this together and then do the application and go home. <laughs> the Lord said to Elijah, go down to meet King Ahab of Israel who rules in Samaria. He will be at neighbor's vineyard in Jezreel claiming it for himself. Give him this message. This is what the Lord says. Wasn't it enough that you killed Naboth? Must you rob him too? Because you have done this, dogs will lick your blood at the very place where they licked the blood of Naboth. You know, if you hear this as Ahab, you probably go like, oh, uh, I don't like that prophecy. But what does he say? He says, so, my enemy, you have found me, Ahab exclaimed to Elijah. You have found me, my enemy. Man of God is his enemy. Yes, Elijah answered, I have come because you have sold yourself to what is evil in the Lord's sight. So now the Lord says, I will bring disaster on you and consume you. I will destroy every one of your male descendants and slave and free alike anywhere in Israel. I'm going to destroy your family as I did the family of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and the family of Basha, son of Ahijah. For you have made me very angry and have led Israel to sin. And says, no one else so completely sold himself to what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did under the influence of his wife Jezebel. His worst outrage was worshiping idols just as the Amorites had done, the people whom the Lord had driven out from the land ahead of the Israelites. Now when Ahab heard this message, not a very encouraging message, right? If you leave, read this in your quiet time, you go like, ooh, that's, that's something, right? When Ahab heard this message, he tore his clothing, dressed in burlap, and fasted. He even slept in burlap and went about in deep mourning. Then another message from the Lord came to Elijah. Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has done this. I will not do what I promised during his lifetime. It will happen to his sons. I will destroy his dynasty. Now, if, if for these last two minutes I can talk to you about this, get your attention about this. People have a problem that God says, I will destroy his sons. But if you think about it, God promised very clear destruction to Ahab. Ahab repented, and God said, okay, I'm not going to do it. Ahab's sons knew about this, Ahaziah and Joram. They knew about this, and if they had walked in the way of the Lord... The judgment announced for the wicked stuff would have turned around and would have, it would have never come. Do you see that? It didn't have to come. You can put that in your notes. This did not have to happen. Right? God is calling his people. He's wrestling with them. He wants them to live a life that honors him and honors the image of God in everyone around them. So the application of this, the message of Ahab has two applications. Number one, 
God sees injustice, and he is not indifferent to it. He sees injustice. If you are in a place where injustice is happening to you, know that God sees and that he cares. But then he also shows his love to Ahab because he tells him, look, I'm going to destroy you. Why tell somebody, look, I'm going to destroy you? Because then they can change. See that? He could have just destroyed him. doesn't have to say anything. He loves Ahab by announcing, this is what's going to happen to you. And then the second application for today is no one. Who does that not include? <laughs> no one is out of reach of God's grace. Do you see that powerful message there? No one is out of reach. Ahab was one of the worst, and God forgave him as he repented. This suggests that there's nothing in your life that you could have done or could ever do that would, you put, would put you out of reach of God's grace. Ahab perverted Israel to a point that eventually led to their destruction. He did more evil than anyone before him, and God forgave him when he showed regret. Right? That means that there is nothing you can do that puts you out of reach of God's grace. Let's worship him. Let's engage with his love. You see how complicated Ahab made it for God. God loves Ahab. He loves people, but Ahab really messed it up. What would you do in that situation? God sends his messengers. He wrestles with people. He forgives and shows love where he can. Amazing story. Amen.